Now, I don't know how good your memory is, but I believe it was, uh, I checked the date, February 4th of 2009, we did this exact same teaching last year. So if you can prove that you were here last year, you don't have to stick around tonight, but I just need to make sure we have proof. So, this is very interesting because this actual same story of Hezekiah's life being extended is actually in three different places in the Bible. Now, if anything, that should show you how important this story is to God. It's for him to take time and to do this three different stories. And it's almost verbatim here in Isaiah 38 and 39 to the same way it is in 2 Kings chapter 20. Now, when we went through that in 2 Kings 20, there's obviously going to be some repetition of points, but I'm not too concerned about that because none of you are going to remember those points. But we're also going to look at it from a slightly different angle. Now, I will say here from the beginning, the way I take this teaching, I'm not, I look at it from a perspective of Hezekiah was not in the right. Now, some people may take a look at this and may say, hey, I see it from a different perspective, a different angle. Love to talk to you afterwards if you have a different take on it. The way I'm teaching it here tonight and the way I kind of see it is I think Hezekiah actually did something wrong. And I think we're going to show that here by the time we get done with the end of it. Because the way it starts out in Isaiah chapter 38 is Hezekiah is going to die. Verse 1, in those days Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall, prayed to the Lord, and said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and tell Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Surely I will add to your days fifteen years. Now, that's quite an interesting story, to say the absolute least. Here's a guy where God says, okay, you're going to die. He prays, and God says, okay, I've changed my mind. Now, you could really take some interesting, I think, application and interpretation out of this verse. I remember a few years ago, it was probably about five or six years, I had a guy call me. He was down in college, down in Columbus. And it was the classic story of there was a girl that he liked, but the girl really didn't like him. And he was really worked up about this. And I said, there's not a whole lot you can do about this. You just have to give this over to the Lord. And you know what? God's the one that's going to find your spouse. Just as Eve was created for Adam, God will take care of that. Don't worry about it. You don't have to find the wife. He goes, okay, but this is the girl I want. Okay, well, that girl may not want you. But he says, okay, but Hezekiah prayed and God changed his mind and gave Hezekiah the desire of Hezekiah's heart. And I said, well, whoa, whoa, wait a second here. Let's not take this story of Hezekiah's life being extended and make the point of it then that if we just pray hard enough, long enough, or bug God enough, he's going to give in. This is not like the little kid going to nap and he just cries and fusses enough where the parent says, fine, forget it, don't take a nap today. Or fine, you can have more ice cream. This is not what it is. It almost looks like God says, okay, Hezekiah, you're going to die. Oh, Hezekiah, I see your tears, you're crying. All righty, I'll give you another 15 more years. Stay awake a little longer if you want. That's not what's going on here. And this is the way I take it. I think the way this is, is I think Hezekiah was wrong. I think the perfect plan probably really was verse 1, of set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Now, before I pick on Hezekiah too much, he's a pretty good guy overall in the Bible. And I've got to give him credit. He's got a great point here, that as soon as something happened in his life that knocked him to his knees, what did he do in verses 2 and 3? He prayed. Now, that's a great point. Because we as Christians, that's sometimes about fourth or fifth on the list. We get some really bad news, and what's the first thing we do? Well, maybe I should call my spouse. Maybe I should call my friend. Maybe I should call into work. 
Hezekiah, the first thing he did is he said, I have to give this to the Lord. So give that guy credit for that. Great application there. We, when we hit their knees, we need to say, okay, Lord, you're the ones who can get me through it. Now, but here's the little theology we have to throw out at you. In the Bible, there's two different types of wills. There's something called God's perfect will, and there's something called God's permissive will. God's perfect will is just that. It's the perfect will of what should happen. It's God's perfect will that we should have still been in the Garden of Eden. It's God's perfect will that we should spend our time in the Word and in prayer and serving and ministering and worship. That's God's perfect will. But God's permissive will is sometimes we do things that He doesn't want, but He still allows it to happen. Now, that doesn't mean when He allows it to happen that He's okaying it. He's given us free will. And you've heard us say out here before, free will is both a blessing and a curse. I can take my time I have and use that towards God's perfect will of taking my life deeper in my walk with Christ. Or I can use God's permissive will and say, I'm going to go do something stupid and wrong. God's not going to stop me. He's given me a free will to make those choices. He allows it. Now, why would He allow something like that? Well, if you would please turn to Psalm 106. Let's talk about this for a second. Why would He allow that type of stuff? Well, we're not mindless zombies. God could make it perfectly clear that He wants me to pray and read and study and worship whether I like it or not. He could make my arms pick up the Bible and say, James, like it or not, you're reading. He could say, James, like it or not, I'm going to have praise come out of your lips. In my heart, I could say, I don't want to do this. And God could say, I don't care. I'm still going to make you do it. Now, is that really a heart to learn more about Him? No, that's a forced thing. Is that really a heart of worship? No, it's a forced thing. So God allows these things to happen because He wants us in our own free will to freely choose to serve Him, love Him, and worship Him. Well, then why does God allow us sometimes to make bad decisions and bad choices? Can't He overrule that? Yes, He can overrule that, and sometimes He does. But here's the case. Sometimes He also doesn't. Okay, a little bit of Old Testament background. When the Jews were coming out of Egypt, do you remember what's the first thing that they needed when they came out of Egypt? First thing they needed was water. Moses spoke to the rock, the water flowed. After that, what's the next thing they needed? They got manna. They got bread. And that's the next thing they got? Quail. They got meat. Now, do you remember what happened after they ate all the quail? They got sick and died. So, now let's just stop here for a second. God gives them the water. God gives them the manna and the bread. But He gives them the quail. Now, God's not dumb. He knew perfectly well that they were going to abuse that quail. And they got themselves sick and thousands of them died. Why would God allow that to happen for them to bring this quail in when it's just going to cause a problem? The answer is actually found in Psalm 106. Look at verse uh, 13. They soon forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel. They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. Look at verse 15. He gave them their request but sent leanness into their soul. So basically, verse 15 is saying God gave into the request, but He gave into the request. Why? To teach them a lesson that after they got what they wanted, they really were going to be more empty than what they could have imagined. God allowed that to happen. He allowed that to happen in their lives to teach them a lesson of, hey, I know what's best, and you need to trust me. Now, that sounds kind of tough sometimes, doesn't it? God allowed it to teach a lesson. So how are we supposed to know? Well, we're supposed to pray, seek His will, wait for an answer. Here's the key of the lesson. And we have to get down to what prayer really is. And these are some of my little pet peeves of prayer. And I have three of them here that I want to tell you about. And you've probably heard me tell these before. 
The first one, what I always think about with prayer is one of my pet peeves, is when we stop, we think, we analyze the situation, and we come down to what we feel are two really good solutions and conclusions. So we come and we give it to God, and I call it the A-B thing. Lord, I ask for your will to be done, and Lord, I pray either this or this. You'd go before this. And a classic example is job situation. Lord, I pray that if they offer me the job, that that means it's your will for me to take it. That's not true. They could offer you the job because you're highly qualified, and God still may say, nope, don't take it. But we like that whole A-B thing, don't we? We like it nice and simple. If they offer me the job, that means it's God's will. No, it doesn't. Well, I'm going to sell my house, and you know what? Or I'm going to buy a house, and I'm going to go give them this offer. And if they accept this offer, this must be God's will for me to buy that house. No, it's not. That house could be a piece of junk, and you're offering twice what it's worth. It doesn't mean that it's God's will. But we like that whole A-B thing that makes prayer really simple. The problem with A-B is there's always an option C. When, when Moses and the Israelites are standing at the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is coming at them, what's A-B? A, we fight, or B, we surrender and become slaves again. God said, I like option C, let's part the Red Sea. Now, the Jews never thought about that. They never thought about that. Remember when Paul and Silas were in prison in the New Testament? Option A, we fight our way out. Option B, we just go to trial and use it for God's witness. Or option C, God says, let's make an earthquake. There's always an option C. The problem is we stop and we think, no, I've analyzed this from every angle. I've looked at this from every situation. Here are the two options. And Lord, I'm giving you these two options. I call it taking to the boss. It's almost like you're the employee and you've thought it out. And boss, here's the two options. Here's the one I think we should do. But I'll let you choose between the two options. That's really putting God in a box. He does not have to choose between your two options of A or B. And I think sometimes in our prayer life, we want it to be so simple. Once again, it's that, okay, if they offer me the job, that's God's will. If they make an offer on the house, I'll take that as God's will. That doesn't work that way. The next one is what I call the Santa Claus, where you treat God as just some big genie in the sky. Lord, I want this and this and this and this and this and this. That's not prayer either. That's making a wish list and sitting on Santa Claus's lap and telling him what I want. And the last one is what I call the rubber stamp prayer. You've analyzed it from every situation. Lord, we feel this is what we should do. And Lord, we ask for your blessing on it. Well, what happens if he doesn't want to bless that? But we feel that's the best idea. He may have another idea. So the reason I bring all this up is I think sometimes we need to stop and take a look at our prayer life and say, okay, God, what is it that you want to do? Actually, some of the best prayers in the Bible are just, Lord, thy will be done. Now, we're going to get to the point here at the end of how to figure out what his will is. But I think sometimes the problem with Hezekiah is Hezekiah came in here and Hezekiah had it all figured out. And Hezekiah is basically saying, if you read his prayer and kind of read between the lines here a little bit, Lord, remember me, how good I am. Why are you doing this to me? God may have said, Hezekiah, I have a reason for this. I just want to share with you real quick. I don't know if you've ever studied from J. Vernon McGee very much, but uh, big fan of J. Vernon McGee straightforward guy, and I always love that part of it. I just want to read you real quick what he says about this. He says, quote, This may seem like an awful thing for me to say, but Hezekiah should have died when the time came for him to die. Three things took place after God extended his life that were foolish acts. He showed his treasury to Babylon, which caused great trouble in the future. He begat a son, Manasseh, who was the most wicked of any king. He revealed an arrogance, almost an impudence, in his later years. His heart became filled with pride, 2 Chronicles 32.25 tells us, But Hezekiah rendered not according to the benefit done unto him. His heart was lifted up. Therefore there was a wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. 
You see, it might have been better if Hezekiah had died at God's appointed time. And that's what we need to talk about here a little bit. Because if you look at what happened with Hezekiah, Hezekiah got 15 more years, as you see there on the end of verse 5. What did he do with his 15 more years? Well, the first thing he did, jump ahead to Isaiah 39 here real quick. Verse 1. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. What a nice guy, right? Those Babylonians weren't that bad. Verse 2. And Hezekiah was pleased with them. Hezekiah says, hey, the Babylonians actually care about them. So, showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Now, this is like saying, going up to a thief, saying, hey, here's the code to my house. These Babylonians were bad guys. <laughs> they were becoming the world power at the time here. And Hezekiah says, I'm happy that they like me. So I'm going to bring these guys in and basically give them a tour of everything. This is like taking your enemy and bringing him in and saying, this is where we store the swords, this is where we store the shields, this is all the good stuff that we have. It's really a dumb thing for Hezekiah to do. But why did he do it? Pride. Verse 3, Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came to me from a far country from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. It's like, here, I keep the extra cash under the mattress. It, it, it makes no sense. I mean, it, it, the, the equivalent would be to, you know, once again, take some country that we're at war with and the president saying, here, here's where Fort Knox is. Here's all our military secrets. This is what we do. It, it just makes no sense. Verse 5, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he said, At least there will be peace and truth in my days. Basically, God says, You want to show off everything you got to Babylon? Fine. Babylon can have it. Hezekiah let pride get in the way. One other quick point here, if you will. Turn, if you will, to 2 Kings 21. And let's make a couple final points on this. 2 Kings 21. What's the other thing that Hezekiah did in his extra 15 years? You've got to read between the lines a little bit on this and do a little bit of math. 2 Kings 21. Look here in verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. Now, let's just stop for a second. Now, may not be the greatest at math. I'm not good at math, but I can figure this out. Hezekiah had 15 extra years. Manasseh was 12 years old when he reigned. So what does that mean? In that last 15 years of Hezekiah's life, he fathered Manasseh. Pretty simple, straightforward. So what did Hezekiah do with his extra 15 years? He showed everything to Babylon, which is wrong. And he also fathered a guy by the name of Manasseh. Now, if you don't know much about Manasseh, let's just read a few verses here of 2 Kings 21, and you shall get a great taste of him. Verse 2, He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. 
He rebuilt the high places, this is places of idolatry, which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He raised up the altars for Baal, which was a foreign uh, false god, made a woman in an image, that's an idol, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and he worshipped the host of heaven and served them. This is not the host of heaven as God. These are fake false gods. He also built altars in the house of the Lord. Now, you have to stop and think like a Jew there for a second. To put idols in the temple of God is huge. Verse 4, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. He built altars for the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He also made his son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spirits and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah. Asherah was this Canaanite goddess that he had made in the house which the Lord has said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Now, jump back real quick to verse 6 when he had his sons pass through the fire. What this was is they had this big statue that was a Molech. And this statue would stick his arms out like this. And they would heat this statue up as hot as they possibly could. And then when you would have your firstborn son, you would immediately place this baby on those hot arms. And the baby would literally be burned to death back then. And it was treated as a sacrifice to this God for you to say, I'm giving you my firstborn, asking for your blessing upon it. I mean, it's absolutely just a horrible, horrible thing. So we get the point here. Manasseh is a bad guy. Argumentably, the worst king of Judah's reign, and arguably just as bad as almost Ahab was over in Israel. Well, where did he come from? He came from the last 15 years of Hezekiah's life. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Let's say Hezekiah would have died, and he wouldn't have lived that other 15 years. Would there be a Manasseh? Would Babylon still come and done all that stuff? You know, I think it was Corey Ten Boom said in her book one time, there's no what-ifs in the kingdom of God. But you stop here for a second and you say, okay, God gave Hezekiah 15 more years. Now imagine if you were in Hezekiah's spot and God said, you have 15 years. That is actually a really unique blessing. You know how much time you have left. You have 15 years. Now I would hope that we would all say, okay, I only have 15 years left. How can I use this for the glory of God? He has blessed me with 15 extra years. How can I use this for Him? Instead, Hezekiah takes the nation down, he takes his family down, and he leaves his uh, seed to destroy the rest of what is going on in Judah. Not a very good thing. Now, once again, the question comes up, what happens then when these prayers are quote-unquote answered? Some answered prayers aren't God's will. One more point about this, then we'll finish up. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 13. When we pray those prayers... And Lord, if you want me to have this job, I pray they offer it to me. They offer you the job. That may not be answered prayer. Lord, if you want us to buy this house and we make this, send this offer, and if they accept this offer, we're going to assume this is your will. may not be God's will. I know a lot of Christians that have got themselves in trouble by doing that whole A-B prayer thing. And they come back and they say, well, it doesn't make sense. I prayed that if God wanted me to have the job, they'd give it to me. That's what you prayed. You put God in a box. You said, God, this is what I want you to do. Why do we do that? Well, let's be quite honest, because it's simple. We like simple choices. Lord, make it clear, make it evident, make it simple. Here's the problem. Look at Deuteronomy 13, and this is the passage that we really should spend more time on that we don't hear a lot about. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy 13. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and that sign or the wonder comes to pass, 
of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. See, every now and then I have somebody comes up to me at church, and they're watching this program on television, or they have this person they're reading or seeing, and they're saying, what do you think of this guy? And it's like, ah, oh, this, this is not a good guy. What do you mean this isn't a good guy? Look at all the stuff that's happening. How could this not be of God? People are getting supposedly healed. All these things are amazing things happen. People send in a love gift of this much. The next thing you know, this much came back. And I always just think, Deuteronomy 13. Sometimes these things happen for God says, I'm testing you. Look at the, verse 3 again. Testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Haven't you in your years of walking with the Lord here, people use God as an excuse? I've heard people use God to do things that are not biblical. I prayed about it and God told me to do this. Why would God tell you to go against His Word? God's not telling you to do that. Well, I prayed about it and I felt like the Lord was moving me to do this. Why would the Lord move you to do something that is so clearly not biblical? You may have convinced yourself the Lord was moving you to do that. You may have thought that, but the truth of the matter is God is not going to move you to do something that's biblically wrong. Well, look at these guys. Maybe God is just testing. Say, are you really going to stop and listen? Because what are we supposed to do as Christians? We're supposed to hear a teaching and just blindly accept it? Of course not. We're supposed to hear the teaching, chew on it, meditate on it, say, God, what are you doing with this? Is this your will? Is this your word? Show me what you want. Just because somebody stands up behind a pulpit with the Bible and teaches doesn't make them right. Just because they have a television show, it doesn't make them right. But so often we just accept it because it sounds so good, it looks so good, and God says, no, 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 no. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, Test it. Look at verse 4. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments, obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. What's supposed to happen to the false prophet? Verse 5. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Can you imagine if this rule was still in application today? There would not be near as many evangelists on TV. I'll tell you that right now. Not too many people would be writing books. Because if we truly said, you know what, this person claims things that ain't biblical, boom, that would really nip a lot of this false teaching in the bud. But God says you are supposed to test this out, walk after Him, listen to the Lord, fear the Lord, and God will reveal to you what His will is. And this is what we're going to finish up with. And you can go to Romans 12, if you will, here. And I know I've been talking for most of the lessons, so I'll stop here for a second before we do the final two points to talk about, okay, okay, James, how am I supposed to know what He wants me to do then? We're going to finish up in Romans 12 here real quick. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments? Yeah, John. I was thinking that if by our stupid decisions that we make in life, um, shouldn't we all be dead? Yeah. <laughs> for not living. And, um, Grace. I, I understand what you're saying, but I'm trying to grasp. Then if we pray for someone, um, well, I'll use Clarence as an example, that the, the doctor did the heart work mm-hmm. that would keep him alive longer, is that wrong because we don't want him to die because of our love for him, our brother? So I'm trying to apply right. the scripture to us. Well, and, and I think it's, he, it's kind of a... It, it's a t- each situation is unique. But in hindsight 2020. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's once again, God has really never told us to use hindsight 2020. We can't. 
Right, and that's the problem. I mean, take for example, this is the thing, is I'll just be honest with you. Sometimes I'm called to um, the final moments of somebody's life. You know, we're called to the deathbed. And I'm always like, okay, I try to feel out the family a little bit here. Because sometimes, you know, the family is saying, nope, we want to pray that everything is better. But sometimes the family reaches a point where they say, you know what, just pray that the Lord takes this person. You know what, precious in the eyes of God is the death of one of his saints. And here we use Clarence as an example of death. So sorry, Clarence. But the point is, with, with Hezekiah, it was perfectly known what God's will was. I think Hezekiah there is perfectly known. If God would come and say audibly, you know, I've called for Clarence to die on the operating table Monday... And then we all say, Lord, no, 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 and Clarence lives, and Clarence goes and fathers a horrible kid. You know, then we know that uh, it was not God's will. But Hezekiah is a, is a very unique situation because we knew exactly what God's will wanted. But like you said, we can't look in hindsight. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's hard to see. And I, John Corson has a great point about uh, marriage. He says in one of his books one time, he goes, you may have married Mr. Wrong, but as soon as you married Mr. Wrong, he became Mr. Right. You know, and you know, in the sense of that vows and gods, etc. You may say, "I should never have done that. I should never have married that person. I should never have had that kid." Well, you did, and now it's something that you're dealing with and working with from here on out. Just the same thing. If you've ever talked to anybody who's made a bad choice in their life, that bad choice may have been a horrible choice that affected them, but then God then uses that choice for good too later on. But Hezekiah is definitely a unique situation because we knew exactly what God's will was. So, anybody else have anything they want to say here before we go to the last couple points? Yeah, Megan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm going to be honest with you, that is, um, I hate to say this too often, but that is really, I think, open to a lot of interpretation. Because either one, you can take that as saying Hezekiah sure seems really, um, what's the word I'm looking for, egotistical. Well, at least the word of the Lord says it's going to be good in my days. <laughs> you know, that's what all the saying sounds like it's saying. Is, has, is he saying at least there'll be peace and truth in my days? I don't know what's going to happen after my generation, but at least there's peace and truth in my days. You could take it that way of almost Hezekiah saying, well, at least good for me. Some people have also taken and say, you know what? The word of the Lord is spoken, and no matter what the word of the Lord is spoken, it is good, and I'm just going to enjoy the peace in my days because God is good. It just depends on how you want to take it. And I know some people that take it as they thought Hezekiah was being egotistical, and he's looking only after himself. And I know people that take it as saying Hezekiah is saying, no matter what, the word of the Lord is good, and I'm thankful for at least the peace that I have in my day. Yeah, Kathy. Um, you know, it's easy to say thank you and the test results come back good. You know, it is. You know, and it's, it's harder to praise them when there's a storm out there. That's the truth of it. And, and I'm the first one to say, I've taught through this lesson a few times, and every time I look at it, I'm thinking, okay. The first time I taught through it, I thought, okay, Hezekiah is just saying, God is good, and I'm thankful for the peace. Another time I taught through it, and I said, boy, Hezekiah is a real jerk about that. You know, at least there's peace in my day. And I don't know. I don't know what his real faults and motives were on that. Yeah. My translation says that um, you know, he prayed to the Lord, and then it, the, the verse, next verse is, then he broke down and wept bitterly. Oh, really? And um, the way with that... Oh, verse 3. Yeah, with that preface, it seems like he stayed there. You're in verse 3 of what chapter? Isaiah 38. Okay. Um, he prayed, remember, over mm-hmm. the Right, and I think what we're actually talking about is Isaiah 39, verse 8. 
Right? That's what you were talking about, Megan? Was verse 8 of Isaiah 39? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and that's the hard part about tears. I, I heard a good uh, teaching on tears recently where it said, you know, some people will have tears to confession of sin, other people won't. You know what I mean? I, his weeping bitterly. I don't know. Did, did yours say bitterly? Yeah, Hezekiah wept bitterly. Mine said sore. Wept sore. You guys, King James? Yeah. yeah, you guys just like to prove you're right all the time, don't you? <laughs> I know, New King James isn't good enough. Yeah, I, and you know, and Jay, once again, I keep going back to Javer and McGee because I'm a big fan of him. He said, I don't know if you knew Javer and McGee was diagnosed with cancer, and he said that when he found out he was diagnosed with cancer, he said he wept bitterly. <laughs> he said he goes, "That's tough news to swallow," mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and that's something where he said he wept bitterly, and he said, "Okay, Lord, I got to give this over to you." So is Hezekiah weeping, as in, Lord, I'm broken by this, or is I'm weeping because woe is me, woe is me? I don't know, I don't know. So, but we're running out of time here. Oh, sorry, Rose. I, you know, because I'm, I, you know, I've actually now, if you look at it, technically talked through this twice in a span of a year, and I think even back then, it's like, you know, I think I took a different angle in the whole Hezekiah. He's, I like Hezekiah. I just want to make this clear. Hezekiah is a good guy. Towards the end here, he kind of makes a couple bad choices, it looks like. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, and there's definitely, like I said, it's definitely a way to take it. And some people have taken this as God said, okay, here's my child that's hurting, and since my child is hurting, I'm going to bless them, you know, with extra time. And and that is definitely a way to take it. That's definitely a way to take it. You know, I know, like I said, when I read through it, and I think it's unique that God puts this in in three different perspectives, and we didn't have time tonight to get to it, but there's a great verse in Second Chronicles 32 where it says in Second Chronicles 32 that the reason God allowed the Babylonians to come was a test to Hezekiah to see if he'd let pride get the best of him, and Hezekiah failed in that test. And that's in Second Chronicles 32. And, and, you know, and that's the tough part about this. And once again, we're looking back in hindsight, trying to say, okay, Lord, what about this and that? I know for me, the main point I take out of it is sometimes with our prayers, it's like, okay, God, this is what I want. And God sometimes says, you know, I know better than you. You've got to trust me on this. And sometimes I trust him and sometimes I don't. That's the truth of the matter. I know you wanted to get going, but thought just came to mind when Abraham, God told Abraham he could kill his son Isaac. Yeah. And he didn't say no. And that would be more devastating than, hey, you're going to die. Yeah. He just was being obedient. He was. He was obedient. And, and, and that is a great point there, too, of God said do it and Abraham just did it. Yes. And I believe, doesn't it say, somebody correct me, this doesn't say in Hebrews that, or that Abraham even thought he could bring him back from the dead. That Abraham's mindset was some, so much the fact of, okay, God has promised me that through this seed I'll become a father of many, that even if I kill him, God's going to take care of it. That's, that's why Abraham's a man of faith, quite the man of faith. Two quick, oh, yeah, go ahead, Ryan. Back to God, and yet still, God 
God said, I'm not going to turn away from my wrath against Judah because of all that Manasseh has done. Mm-hmm. And it turned out, you know, 40 years later, that's when Babylon came. Right. So, that's, uh, so Manasseh was that bad that even after this cleaning house of Josiah, it still had to be dealt with. Yeah, you know, and that's the thing is, you know, we always talk about the grace and mercy of God, but there's also God as a just God. Sin has to be dealt with. And, you know, in us living, obviously, in the New Testament grace of Jesus, sin has been dealt with with Christ on the cross. Um, but, you know, so often we sin and we say, okay, God, forgive me. And it's just like, oh, I didn't die. How simple was that? We don't realize the punishment that happened 2,000 years ago on the, the cross for that sin. And like you're talking about there with Manasseh, Manasseh was, he was wicked. There's no way around that. And God says there has to be judged, and that wickedness was judged. And what Israel went through when Babylon came in 586 B.C. and took them out was, was horrible. I mean, absolutely horrible if you've ever read Lamentations or anything like that. So. And it's also mentioned in Second Chronicles that Manasseh actually repented near the end. Yeah, and, you know, and that's the funny thing about Manasseh. And um, when we went through the uh, King study there, Manasseh at the end, and this doesn't get talked about a lot. So often we talk about Hezekiah starting out good, going bad. Josiah even started out good. And at the end of Josiah's life, he had a few speed bumps of doing some stuff he shouldn't. But Manasseh was one that kind of repented at the end. And that's one that doesn't get enough attention. And, um, it's only mentioned in Chronicles, not Kings. Yeah, no one ever reads Chronicles, you know. So, But uh, it, except, for, except for Ryan there. But it is. It is in Chronicles. It is in Chron- I mean, and seriously, Chronicles is a good book. Good, it is a good book. Um, we got to get finished up here, though, because there's... 75 kids back there that parents are waiting on. Two verses I just want to finish up with. First one, John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. John 10, 27. If you're saying, okay, how am I supposed to know what God's will is? My sheep hear my voice. As sheep of Christ, we will hear, we will know what God's will is. Okay, how am I supposed to know what God's will is? Romans 12, 1 through 2. If you're taking notes, Romans 12, 1 through 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here's the key, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God is. If you want to know what the will of God is in your life, you become the living sacrifice of Romans chapter 12. You do not conform yourself to this world and you're transformed in Christ. You're a new creation. So therefore, instead of saying, God, this is what I want, you stop and say, God, what do you want? And I'm going to be honest with you. Prayer is hard work. When you're seeking God on something and you feel like you're not getting the answer, I encourage you, keep staying strong in prayer, keep staying strong in the Word, keep staying strong in worship. God speaks through the body. He speaks through worship. He speaks through prayer. He speaks through the Word. Keep your ears open. Keep your eyes open and say, okay, Lord, I'm not going to conform myself to this world and I'm just going to say, what is your will? Romans 12, 1 and 2 promises that God will reveal His will to us when we give ourselves over to Him. So I encourage you to stay faithful in that. So, all right, it's late, so we've got to let you guys go. And let's have a quick word of prayer. Lord, as we come to you now, thank you for the time to be here. Lord, I pray that we truly would seek you on all things and all ways, no matter what, Lord. And Lord, you make it clear and evident what you want us to do. In your name we pray. Amen.